All right. Um, so we're in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. And the title of today's sermon is called Arresting Development. Um, we're going to be talking about Peter. Peter is famous. He's kind of like uh, the star of the show, especially in the book of Mark, since uh, the book of Mark, written by Mark, is basically his interview of Peter uh, for what uh, Peter observed. Um, so when I say Peter is kind of like the star of a show, I think of him kind of like, you know, Michael Scott in The Office. You know, Steve Carell was the star of that show, and he was made famous mostly for being an idiot, uh, which is actually a lot like Peter. That's what we're going to be talking about. And I bet now that you think of a dense and thoughtless character, I bet every time you think of Peter now, you're going to have Michael Scott on your mind. God! No, God, please, no! 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 Anyway, as uh, Michael Scott in the office went through the seasons, he grew as a character. His character arc had growth, and he became more lovable and kind as, the, as time went on. And, and the same is true for our resident doofus, Peter. Uh, I'm going to start by reading a text from his letter that he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 20, or, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So as we read that, it sounds good, Peter. You know, you're willing to trust God and suffer for his kingdom. You know, this is where Peter is going to end up, understanding the point of suffering and trials and difficult times in his life. He, he'll continue on in that text in 1 Peter 2 to say, Who committed no sin, Jesus, and nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So again, Peter is going to go on to become the leader of the church for the next couple of decades at least. He's going to be transformed. And so our question today is, how? How is Peter transformed? And the answer is by what Jesus does on this night and this day. You see... Jesus is the only one that can really transform anyone. We can never transform ourselves. And Peter, he starts this night, you know, full of his own plans, full of his own efforts and ideas, and he's going to be broken of all of that. He's, he's going to go through a process of being transformed. And we're going to see that Peter literally does everything wrong in this scene that we're about to watch in this episode so the question I'm going to ask you today is, are you going to see yourself in his bloopers or in his mistakes? So let's, uh, let's start reading our text here in Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And it says uh, here, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. 
why do you think that they needed a signal? Well, the simple answer, I guess, would be that Jesus didn't really stand out from the crowd. Uh, he was a very normal-looking guy uh, among his disciples, which I guess would mean he had a beard, because they all had beards, and, you know, the glory of these mighty beards would have distracted the army. Um, you know, it's funny, because I, I feel like the only one that never really has a really great beard in the in the depictions and in the movies, it's always Judas. Judas is the one, he always has a splotchy beard. You know, it reminds me of Nathan Taylor, how his beard just doesn't grow in full and, and glorious, but, but just kind of splotchy. So there's an illustration you can keep in your mind when thinking of Judas. Um, yeah, Judas has plans to betray Jesus with a kiss. Uh, you can call this the kiss of death. That's actually where they get that term from. Uh, it's the most famous kiss of all time. You know, you have Sleeping Beauty, you have The Princess and the Frog, you have Buttercup and Wesley, you have Jim and Pam, all these famous kisses. This one is more famous than them all. <clears throat> and our text continues. It says, As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now this is weird because in the... Greek, there's the word for kiss, which is phileo, and uh, then uh, the they add the word kata before this, which intensifies it, which means this is a, a very thorough and extremely friendly and sincere kiss. Um, why did Jesus use, or why did Judas, excuse me, use such a kiss? Um, and I think, just very simply, it shows us that we can appear to know Jesus. You can seem like you like Jesus. You can even seem like you love Jesus. Maybe even think that you love Jesus. And still totally betray Jesus. If I asked you if you like Jesus, the answer is probably yes. If I ask you if you love Jesus, the answer is also probably yes. But if I asked you if you trust Jesus completely, his will, even to death, and if you're willing to surrender to his plan and his will every step of your life, then the answer may be different. But we got to trust him. That's what walking with him and trusting him is. So today, I guess we're kind of asking ourselves this question, am I a Judas? Am I willing to kiss Jesus and praise him, but not willing to really obey him? Then it says, they laid their hands on him and they took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know that this is Peter. Um, and I've I believe by context we can discern that he was not trying to cut off the ear of this soldier, or uh, his name is Malchus, we actually find out. I don't think Peter was trying to cut off his ear. I think Peter had his sword and he was going right down the middle of his head trying to do as much damage and cut him right in half, and he's a bad aim. Uh, if we compare this with the other three Gospels, it's helpful and it fills out some of the details. In John 18, it says that it was Peter who did this. 
Uh, and it tells us that the guy's name was Malchus, and he was a servant to the high priest. And then Luke informs us that Jesus took the guy's ear and healed it back onto his head. I, and so our question then is, why doesn't Mark mention Peter's name? And I think maybe there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, Mark was written about 40 years probably before John was. And I think Peter was still alive at this time, and Rome could maybe have prosecuted him for cutting off this guy's ear. Although, I think that would have been kind of funny when they asked the guy, so what happened to you? Oh, Peter cut off my ear. And then they look at his ear, and it's there. And So I think, I don't know, that would have been a funny situation. Um, but I think this is basically Peter's story, and so maybe part Mark left out the story to kind of respect and honor Peter, and he didn't... Uh, give his name, and maybe Peter was embarrassed, you never know. Um, but maybe, and this is maybe a funny answer too, is maybe Mark just figured we would all know it was Peter anyway, because he was always a big doofus. In Matthew 26, that version of the story, it says, Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, uh, which say that it must happen this way? So Jesus is like, Peter, I could have, you know, thousands of innumerable, powerful, insanely, infinitely powerful angels to defend me. I don't need you and your sloppy, swinging sword to defend me, Jesus told Peter. And what we see here is that Jesus was submitted to God's will. He was ready to go to the cross. He was ready to be arrested. But Peter's sword represents rebellion against God's will. Peter should have known that Jesus would be arrested. Why? Because Jesus told him literally flat out like five times before this, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead. But Peter didn't believe. He, Jesus was going to willingly surrender to his enemies and allow them to kill him. And Peter should have known that. But Peter, he does everything wrong. He makes every mistake possible in this scene. Uh, he fought the wrong enemy. He used the wrong weapon. He had the wrong motive. And he accomplished the wrong result. He's acting, listen to this, he's acting just like the world. All the officers who came to arrest Jesus, they came ready for a fight. They had swords and clubs. And Peter, he's acting just like them. He's responding to them. And by acting this way, instead of like Jesus, with humility and surrender, uh, Peter is actually hindering the work that God wanted to accomplish. He's fighting against the will of God. He's not being smart He's not thinking ahead. He's not doing what he can. He's not surrendered. How did Peter get so messed up? Well, this isn't just a spur of the moment. Oh, I got caught off guard. Let me cut your head off. Ah. No, this is, this is after a path that Peter has been walking down. All this night, Jesus had invited Peter to come and pray. And Peter had decided he didn't need to or he didn't know how. It's not a mystery how Peter ended up here. He didn't pray. He set himself on this path of self-sufficiency, and this is where you end up hurting people. 
prayer would have and could have corrected this. What does this matter to us? As we're thinking about Peter and him slicing this guy's ear off, what does it mean to us in Denver, Colorado in 2020? Well, things can be quite contentious when it comes to politics these days, can't they? It seems like there's so much division and so much, so many people ready to fight. And there's one very, very simple but clear thing that we must remember as a church and as believers. We must never fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. I'm going to tell you a story. There's in the 1800s, there's two prominent preachers, one named uh, Newman Smith and the other Robert Hall. And they were friends, but then a controversy arose between uh, them on some theological point, and they started arguing a bunch. And so Reverend Smith wrote a bitter pamphlet, you know, uh, denouncing Hall and his doctrine. You know, he blew him up on Facebook. Uh, so having finished this pamphlet, Smith was having trouble coming up with a proper title, so he sent it to one of his <coughs> excuse me, good friends for a suggestion. What do you think I should name this title? He said to his friend. Um, and uh, sometime earlier, Reverend Smith had written a, a widely read and helpful pamphlet called Come to Jesus. And when he read the new pamphlet um, against this other preacher, Hall, his friend sent back the pamphlet with this suggestion. The title I suggest for your pamphlet is this, Go to Hell, by the author of Come to Jesus. You see, we can't fight and win when we fight with the flesh. We are either on Jesus' side and inviting people to come to Jesus and loving them, or we're not. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, for we walk in the flesh. We do not war. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And this is talking about prayer. Prayer is where we fight as Christians. That's where we make a difference. Do you know why you got saved? It's because someone was praying for you. Do you know why someone else is going to get saved? It's because of prayers. God listens to our prayers. God acts when we pray. That is the way he has given us to impact this world the most. It seems like we're not getting anything done when we're praying. I, I fully acknowledge that. To my flesh and to my mind, it seems like we're not really getting stuff done. But really, it's the only thing that will ever accomplish anything in the spiritual realm, in the world that is invisible. We need to pray more. Then we can act, but only after much prayer. Then we can speak, but only after much prayer. But it's hard to remember this when we're being attacked or persecuted and to not get angry with the person, but remember that Satan is the real enemy. It's much easier to grab any sword of the flesh and start wielding it like Peter than to try to pick up the sword of the Spirit spending time in the Word and praying the promises of the Word over and over. Peter, he took up a sword, but Jesus, he took up his cup. And I want you to think about the difference between those two things. 
Peter wants to, to cut somebody down while Jesus, he's willing to go down himself to drink the poison, to drink the wrath of God and the wrath of men. We don't have to fear the cup that God has prepared for us. We could ask Jesus, Jesus, how did you do it? How could you submit to be abused by men and to be tortured and to be killed? But the reason why he was able to do this is because he had already submitted to God's will. He had already made his decision through prayer. I'm going to honor my father and drink the cup that my father gives. We don't have to fight for his kingdom. We sacrifice, we suffer, we surrender for his kingdom. And Peter is going to learn this actually very well. Remember, Peter changes because of these events. And if we fast forward in his life and go back to the letter that he writes, you know, many years after this, after he's grown and after he's been restored, in 1 Peter 4.1, he says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, let us, or excuse me, arm yourselves with the same mind. Do you hear his language? Arm yourselves, like with a sword. Arm yourselves with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in his flesh for the will, lusts of men, but to the will of God. So did you see the difference there? So instead of being armed with a sword, like Peter is in this story, He's armed with the mind of Christ. He's filled himself with God's will, and he's alive with his will. He's filled with his spirit. He's abiding in God and in his son, Jesus. Instead of trying to cut people down, he is willing to, he said, suffer for people. He's willing to suffer for victory instead of fight for it. Have you ever heard the term, kill him with kindness? That's a little bit of what Peter is learning here. Jesus, my life belongs to you, we would pray. I want to do your will, not my own. And when my enemies want or expect me to pull out the sword and defend myself, instead, I'm just going to love and forgive. Our text goes on, then Jesus answered, said to them, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And what he's saying basically here is, guys, you don't, you don't even need to do this. I'm humble, and I want you to understand and realize that I am humble. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus spoke, and he said, "My yoke, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is like... I'm not going to fight you. You didn't even need these clubs. All you had to do is ask me to go with you, and I would have done it because it's the will of my Father. Pretty amazing surrender that Jesus is showing us here. Then we have this very key verse that says, Then they all forsook him and fled. All of them. <clears throat> so it's not just Peter, every single one of his disciples. And what I see here is that Jesus had to do the will of God alone. If Jesus was going to do the will of God, it was going to be alone. And it's just like this in my life. If I'm going to go to victory, if I'm going to experience victory, if I'm going to make any progress, Jesus is going to have to do it all by himself with no help from me. 
So what role do I play? And that question, you know, stressed me out for many years. It bothered me. Okay, I get that Jesus is a savior and he's great and he's awesome and he's God and he wants me to do all these things. But what do I do? How, how do I do it? And the answer is Jesus must do it all. So what is my part then? Well, there's two ways that I need to stay connected with Jesus. That connection is my responsibility. I just need, he's never going to leave me or forsake me. But in order for me to experience all the victory that he's going to win, I need this connection. And it's, it's secured in two ways. The first way is humility and the second way is faith. I get this question a lot. Don't those seem really passive? Don't those seem like, so you're telling me I don't do anything and Jesus just changes me and does everything? And the answer is yes. Well, that seems really passive. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that by saying, no, it's actually very active. So humility, it, it seems passive maybe, but what it really is, is actively turning my back on self-sufficiency. It's a very active thing. I'm not going to trust my thoughts or efforts. So Every moment, my self-sufficiency is going to rise up, and I have to actively turn my back on it and say, I will not trust in my own ability, but I will trust in the God who says he has given me grace. So humility, very active, not passive. Faith also is not passive. We don't just sit there. It's an active turning to Jesus and an active trusting with my heart his finished work on the cross. I have to actively say I'm going to grab a hold of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to lay hold of it, and I'm going to claim it as being for me and it's accomplished for me. You've heard name it and claim it, and that's a bad thing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about taking what Jesus has done on the cross and believing in its sufficiency for yourself. No one can do it for you. No one can say, I trust in Jesus, and I, I want my kids to trust in Jesus, I want my wife to trust. No one can do it for you. You have to make your own choice whether you're going to put your hope and trust completely in Jesus. <clears throat> if I try to walk down the road to victory as a Christian in my own strength, I will end up running away because of its horror and terror. Because only Jesus can walk down that road. Only he has. And he does it alone. And so because he does it alone, because he does it for us, Jesus deserves all praise and all glory and all honor. And all blessing belongs to him. Because he is the Messiah. He is the victor. He is the one who has bought and redeemed us with his own blood. He is faithful even when we are faithless. He wins when we lose. He sets us free from the pressure of feeling like we have to win the victory ourselves. Your victory doesn't depend on your strength, but simply your abiding. It's him, and you have been given victory freely by grace. It is there for you. How do I get it? Again, simple answer, humility and faith. Connect with Jesus in those two relational realities. Well, we have one last little part here. It says, then a certain young man followed him, having a linen uh, cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him 
And he left the linen cloth and fled away from them naked. Yeah, that's in the Bible. And what we guess is that this is actually a story of Mark, the one who wrote this book, the author of this gospel. And I think what he does is he includes himself in the number of people of those who abandoned Jesus. And if that's true, that's a very interesting evidence of the truth of this gospel. Because if someone was making up this story, authors who make up stories don't usually reveal their own greatest failures when they're making up a fake story. They conveniently leave out their failures. They make themselves look better than um, they should. And this is a, a neat evidence of the veracity or truthfulness of this gospel. So that is our text today. That's the word that we have today, is that Jesus will, by himself, lead us into victory. All I have left for us today is a prayer that I'm going to pray, and I'm going to lead us in that right now. (coughs) God, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would show us You would shine light on the courage of Christ. Not our own courage, because God, we are cowards when it comes to the horrors um, of pain and suffering. But God, you are so courageous. Jesus, you are so courageous. I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of God revealed in the works and the words of Jesus. Each and every one of us would have fled before the pain and the sorrow that crept in on Jesus this night. We would have ran away and not looked back no matter what shame we would have experienced. Even when we think we are strong, when we take up our swords, we still mess up everything. God forgive us. What could be done for us? Jesus, you have done everything that we needed. The only thing that could give us what we needed was your death on the cross and your powerful resurrection, and so that's what you gave. And you offer us forgiveness. You invited us to be renewed and brought near into a right relationship with God through the cleansing of your precious blood. You gave us the power to change your very presence, the blessed Holy Spirit, given to us freely so that we can walk in your power and do your will. And that's what we pray this week, that we would do your will, that we would surrender everything to your will. Help us to love and forgive and be a light in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.